This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Oli Tikkanen. Welcome, everyone. In this episode, we are going to talk about national guidelines of physical activity and whether those are a friend or a foe for PA promotion. And we have a great guest for today's episode. Our guest is working as a professor of physical activity and health in University of Bristol. His work revolves around themes of physical activity and especially on physical activity policies. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our guest, Professor Charlie Foster. Welcome, Charlie. Thanks, Ollie. It's a pleasure to be here and delighted to be finally part of your epic podcast series. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> nice to have you in the podcast. So, so if we start with the National Physical Activity Guidelines, could you give us a short history what they are? Yes, yeah, sure. Um, so... All of us who work in physical activity promotion have this sort of rubric, this this central thing that we we, we hold on to, which is about promoting physical activity. So how much we promote is really based on what we call these national guidelines. And these are recommendations for how active adults or children or special populations need to be in order to achieve mainly health benefits. And usually there's a sort of specific prescription of how much time or how frequently or how intense. But they've been around for a long time, exercise uh, guidelines. Uh, It's not just uh, a recent thing since the mid-90s. The ancient Greeks had them. Hippocrates had, had had a guideline on how much exercise you should do every day, also including hand washing. So probably good good lesson for our time now. So these things have been around for a very long time. And uh, what we're, we're trying to do is is understand where they've come from and why they matter and what they could do for us uh, going forward. Mm, I didn't actually know that the ancient Greeks had it. So how how was their MVPA recommendation? <laughs> well, I, I think I think it's pretty brutal. <laughs> it's uh, it was it clearly organised for military participation, which of course the irony for most. Uh, fitness training um, was we'd had a military purpose if we think about the muscular christianity of the victorian era in in england um that was entirely about providing healthy young men to go off and fight uh, for for the country um we saw that again in you know the sort of link system of swedish gymnastics all those sorts of things you know we we've been around for a long time as as a sort of discipline but we've not really uh, you know, understood perhaps where we've come from. And I'd love, wouldn't it be great, let's do another podcast about the history of physical activity, where it's come from. But we'll do that another time. That that would be great, actually. So earlier it was a military purpose. Is it now the workability or what do we try to achieve now with the recommendations? That is a really good question, Ollie, And that's one I've been struggling with. Um, not because, you know, we don't know what they do, because they are basically you know, statements of how active you need to be to achieve a certain level of health benefit. But their purpose 
It can be can be across a number of things. They can be used for setting targets for populations as a kind of a, a measure for, for surveillance, perhaps a conversation starter with a patient in a clinical setting about activity. Um, it could be uh, for communicating messages to the public. And of course, at an individual level, it's about uh, helping you maintain good health, healthy uh, physical and psychological health. Um, but why do governments have them? Well, it's a good question. I mean, not all governments do, which is why the WHO produced their global guidelines so people can adopt them. But, you know, in other countries, they've been around for a while and they do keep changing, um, and which is obviously based on the science. But their purpose, their purpose isn't. And, and this is something that some of your listeners might might disagree with me about. They're not here to actually change population behaviour. They're not there. They don't do that. There's a magical kind of, yeah, it's a bit like astronomy. Just because Jupiter's in a particular part of the sky doesn't influence your behaviour. Just because we have physical activity guidelines doesn't mean your population will become more active. And you know that feeling when you read the opening paragraph of a paper and you're reviewing it and you say, We've had physical activity guidelines for 20 years, and yet the population prevalence of inactivity remains stubbornly low. Well, yeah, yes, they're not designed to do that. So, you know, I think they're there for the reasons I've given, and I think they're probably still trying to work out what they are trying to do. But the, their original desire clearly was to give safe, effective advice for a population to know something which will help them maintain their health. And unlike smoking or alcohol messages, it's about a relational behavior, about doing something as opposed to not doing something. That's a long answer for you. Yeah. So we do we have the philosophical basis behind them that why do we do this? Or is it kind of people think that we have it? Or have we actually really thought it through that what is why they are there? Um, I, that's a, that's, again, that's a really nice point. I think they're there because they they kind of have been medicalized, you know, and I know my sociological friends get very irate about the medicalization of risk, sort of personification of risk. You know, you're, you're, you're classified in some way that gives you a level of risk and that's not really, you know, fair or, or human for you. But I don't think physical activity promoters particularly feel like that. I think what we have is a, a kind of target in our heads about how active is is I is you know kind of the recommended level, and our jobs is, are trying to help people move up a kind of you know almost like a, a, a escalator is the wrong image, but a, a stairs, a set of stairs, you know. And some people are right down the bottom; they're not even in the stairwell in terms of their activity and how they want to do it, even if they want to do it at all, because of their social and economic conditions. They're far more pressing things going on. So I think physical activity guidelines help governments feel good about what they're doing. They're providing the right up-to-date information for people to make choices, but thinking it helps people to make choices is a limitation. And of course, we know that health behaviors are not solely the responsibility of an individual. So, you know, guidelines are part of a system, but not the only part. I was just about to come to that, that are the recommendations kind of pushing the responsibility to individuals, kind of neoliberal take on this, that you don't do enough, even if the society or the city or doesn't enable, maybe the neighborhood is not safe. So is it a little bit pushing the responsibility? 
I think I think it could be seen like that. Um, I think what I'm pleased about with the new UK guidelines and certainly some of the other international guidelines I've seen that that kind of tyranny of the threshold, that 150 minutes that you've got to kind of just get yourself over because 145 minutes that's not good enough, you know. So what we have what are doing now is valuing the activity that lies below that that line and recognizing our populations are at various different behavioral stages. Um, and just banging on to say you've got to reach this level, you've got to keep doing, you've got to go up to 300 minutes a week. You know, I, I spent three years working clinically with, with you know, with, with patients in the Midlands and in England, you know, deprived working class communities. And their lack of physical activity was not their most important health behavior in their heads. You know, we could have a conversation and they did recognize it would be helpful and useful and good, you know, good in, in a, a kind of sense that they would feel better. The acute effects is really what they were after. But the sort of the long term kind of, you know, reducing cardiovascular disease, et cetera, et cetera. That's not necessarily perhaps in people's heads. So I think you're right that there, there could be a way to it could be seen as sort of, you know, Big Brother-esque, and in fact, in George Orwell's 1984, there is a scene where Winston Smith is encouraged to do his daily physical activity, and you know, he's being monitored. Um, you know, and you can you can you can almost hear his heart beating harder and harder and harder, and get, as he gets more stressed in the, in the beautiful writing. But you know, that's not what we're after. I think what we're after is giving people a direction of travel, recognizing they have they have a choice, capability, and opportunity, and that's not equal across society, and, and hopefully allowing them to 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 take steps but also have environments that support them and policies and support them and the economic and financial um, you know conditions that also support them to do that because getting yourself active just because the job you do isn't a leisure time choice and and I, th- I think it's quite interesting that most of the countries have similar recommendations I'm not sure if it's that the World Health Organization makes something and countries kind of adapt it a bit. But basically, we just have kind of threshold that you should go over this and then it's fine, even though it's more is better approach basically in everything until a certain limit, which most of the people will never be at. So how about like, you know, for example, heart rate zones, you have the basic endurance, speed training, maximal, you have these like, could we have the recommendations in a way that we would have the whole spectrum, not just that get over this threshold and you get what do you get kind of quite good yeah. health? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love it. I, I, I suspect you might be a bit of a physiologist, Ollie. It's, it's somewhere, yeah, somewhere in the background there. Um, yeah. So I, I'm a behavioral scientist. I, you know, physiology is something I let cleverer people than me do. But I think you're right. But what you're looking to, t- to describe is, is a translation point of the guidelines into different metrics that people could choose to value. And the classic one that people always throw at me is, why don't we have a step count as a physical activity recommendation? Because, you know, there's expensive devices we put on our wrists and they tell us how many daily steps we have. Um, I think that's one metric. But what it what it has to do, we have to have we have to communicate the guidelines in a way that people will find helpful. And, you know, different ways of, of of making the threshold real for folks and real for where they start from is what we're after next. And that's something that I think people globally are are, are challenged by. You know, how do we communicate? How do we use guidelines in a way that's going to be effective? Um, 
And, and your example there about heart rate, that different kind of metric, um, it could be, you know, numbers of stairs climbed today, miles you've walked, cycles you've done, times you've lifted to shopping. And that's the aerobic metric. But strength, how do we do strength? What's the daily metric for strength? You know, lifting your children up three or four times. I mean, that would probably do it. <laughs> so it's, it's you know, that, that translation from an epidemiological threshold to a positive gain frame message. And there's some fantastic work coming out at the University of Edinburgh led by Chloe Williamson, um, Nanette Mutri and Paul Kelly. How do we, how do we reshape and relanguage the way we present physical activity to, to people? And of course, the expertise about that is somewhere where we actually as scientists you know, have been reluctant in the past to travel, which is talking directly to the folk it actually matters to. The expertise of the population you want to listen to. So listen to them. This podcast is sponsored by Fibion. Uh, my name is Dr. Paul Batman, and I'd like to just say a few words about Fibion. Um, I've used it a number of times on different projects that I've been involved in and find that it's incredibly reliable, very valid and incredibly sturdy. I, I love the graphics that come with it. It really is very clear and can easily see the active in and active periods as well. So I'd certainly recommend Fibion to anyone that's interested in finding out more about sedentary behaviour, particularly the concept of sitting and how we can possibly break it up with some really good, valid information. Fibion, from researchers to researchers. Yeah, and I, I think it really comes down to the how simple you make the message. And then, of course, you lose something when it's too simple. It's it's not that simple. And, and for example, you have this in UK five a day for vegetables and fruits and I, I think that's quite a simplification you have like one number and then a preposition uh, and then a word five a day and it seems people really know it and then when you actually look the guidelines more closely potato doesn't count tomato sauce in a pasta counts for once or something nuts once and, and so on so it's actually a big list but it's a simplification do you see that the Physical activity guidelines should be as simple or actually they kind of are sit less, move more. Or how, how do you see the comparison to five a day? Oh, that, that's that's so I have had lots of pressure um, and ministers have said to me, why don't we do a five a day for physical activity? You know, why don't we do five five things you do in the day that that, that would add up to your physical activity, um, your kind of daily amount, as it were. Um, and. You're right, people, well, people claim they know what five a day is, but they, you know, um, and using his own argument, he refuted earlier, but they don't necessarily do it. Um, so we know that knowledge, attitude, behaviour link is is really broken. Um, we, we've, we've not had what I would suggest is what's required. It's not just the message, but it's the promotion of the message and the reinforcement of the message and having a social and cultural and physical environment that supports that choice. You know, it, if we see that participation in Canada was running for 10, 15 years, doing really good social marketing kind of messaging around physical activity and had traction and movement and, and you know, and an effect. Um, but, but the bundling of the message into something more simple is obviously what communicators like to do because they want to reduce it down to something that's really simple, strapline, you know, the kind of the, the thing, the tag for the for the the, the just do it generation. You, you know, you you can associate that with with the product. I think we, we have to get there. 
Um, and that's going to require more, more work. I do love, the, I, I'm, I'm a bit sad. So I collect international examples of how to promote physical activity. And, and I do like the Finnish one, which is the, which was the sort of pie or the cake version of physical activity. You know, take a slice from this bit. Take, I, I just like that as a metaphor. I think it's really good. Um, and there are other nice examples globally. So I think there's an opportunity to bring this intelligence together of different ways of doing things. Clearly, they're culturally specific and appropriate. Um, but just dis, just understand the mechanism by which these things can occur. But don't low, end up with a message that's so kind of meaningless that, you know, it doesn't actually have any traction with, with the public. So there's 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 a career in some science for someone who's listening yeah yeah and how do you see the communication part for example you have behind you you have a infographic some kind of a pie format there's different shapes uh i think the modern way would be kind of funny engaging videos when do we when do we get like video i think is is today infographic is maybe five, ten, fifteen years ago thing yeah, and, in, in a way so yeah this is five years old um so th- this is our pregnancy uh infographic for health professionals who work with 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 women who are pregnant and we also have a postpartum one as well and at, you know Ray right in 2015-16 it seemed to be a really a really nice way of simply presenting our, our the guidelines in a way that would be memorable for the professionals who work with those groups so this isn't public facing but we did design it with the health professionals midwives health visitors um uh, obs and gynae etc consultants uh, and after you know, a lot of workshop and consultation you know we, we agreed some of the language on here which is actually quite as you described earlier quite simple so one of the phrases on this thing is don't bump the bump and the nurses and, and midwives and pregnant women all understood what that meant You know, don't do activities that will bump your bump. The cons- the consultants and the doctors hated it because it wasn't specific enough. And I think there we have that that great example of the tension between the simplification approach, the desire to be clear, but also the desire to still remain evidence based. Um, in the end, I called it and we went with it. So, you know, so so that co production is really important. I think that's the point I'm trying to get round to. Is you know if you're going to make something, talk to people, and, and they'll help you make it so much better. But you're right, video. So you think video? <laughs> Why is that? I, I think video. <laughs> yeah, I, you you know, like the uh, I I just saw the most downloaded apps, and the WhatsApp is the world's most downloaded app, which is communication. But second is actually TikTok, which is like ten second mainly 10 second videos you can have up to 60 seconds but that seems to be like seems to be where we are heading i'm not sure if it's good or bad but it's very short videos that people can consume like you can just have few seconds you watch a video you put the phone away you watch the next one so so i i, I think communicating especially for younger people i think we need to use the formats that they they really prefer yes use, use the mechanisms make it funny engaging use music that's contemporary and they understand and their parents don't know that are completely right um and my 16 year old daughter spends hours on tiktok i don't know what she's doing but 
you know, she follows particular trends and perhaps we should try and imbibe what we do then. I remember you know, 15 years ago, we wanted to get physical activity messaging into television and radio soap operas as part of a national campaign to kind of normalize it. Um, and that, that we thought was quite radical at the time because it was all about TV. This is pre-internet. You, you were far too young. You won't remember that, Ollie. Um, but, you know, th th that was for us quite a radical way. And then we got text messaging. Ooh, this is really exciting. And then we got the Internet. And we have web pages. And now we've got, you know, a bit of infographic. That was kind of a stopgap to go on the wall. But you're right. I think we need to understand what are the mechanisms by which people consume information. Um, and the advertising agencies know this. And we have to really start to use that intelligence they have. We have on our communications committee in the UK some, some folk who work in advertising for exactly that reason. So hopefully we'll start to understand a bit more. Yeah. And if you think that you want to affect people's emotions or you want to really engage them, text is really boring. Infographic is a little bit better. But why do, why do for example, cars are almost always advertised with the TV ads? It's You get the emotion. It's always the nice music background and the car sliding there. So it really affects. It's just the metal box with the wheels. But yeah, yeah, you, you yeah. Feel I, I don't something. have a car. I have a bike. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. Me too. We get. <laughs> we've been able to avoid like the <laughs> the advertisements. Yes, I've not been seduced by it. Yeah, yeah. But actually, if I go a little bit back, you said about the the language in these uh, pregnant uh, women recommendations and. I think that's that's quite often the problem. Like the academic people are planning these, and then you have people reading, and do they understand kind of phrases? How, how do you see? How should we? How should we approach this? Well, I, I think I think we we have to admit that perhaps we've been at fault um, in the past. We, we we've used this sort of technical language that, to be honest, we kind of invented ourselves. You know. Again, back you know, if we think about where sports science came from, sports science came from exercise testing and fitness, um, and the health and fitness industry, and then there was a kind of branch off into the various um, ologies, you know, psychology, biomechanics, physiology, etc. But then, then the health bit kind of also flourished, and then we saw people talking about instead of exercise, talking about physical activity and health. So you know, now we have. You know, I, in fact, I just looked online um, last week. We have about 45, um, you know, postgraduate courses with physical activity and health in the title in the UK and you know, nearly 100 undergraduate courses with some kind of physical activity in it. So you know, we, we've we professionalized it, but I don't think the public have caught up or perhaps even care, you know, that they they might know different. We just finished a nice piece of work. We're interviewing older adults in, in, in England. Um, we did about 60, did an hour's interview, effects of COVID, et cetera, et cetera, but talked a bit about what they understand about this term physical activity. And they kind of told us it wasn't that relevant. They, they understand it moving more, you know, taking exercise, doing things that will make you feel better. But the, but the kind of physical activity was almost a product And it's not a label that, that they, 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 they use in their daily lives, talking to their friends over the wall with a cup of tea. So we have to understand that experience and perhaps start to reframe the language. And I was in a, in a conference in the north, north of England, um, up in Durham. And one of the, the, the delegates asked a question about 
exactly this about language. And I, and I said, actually, just speak to the local population. They probably have their own idioms for walking as they do for weather, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, yeah, we need to mank up physical activity guidelines, make them relevant for Manchester. So that's what we want. And, and a little bit of work we did in Bristol, speaking um, with, with you know, local community members from very deprived areas of, of, of Bristol, that's exactly what they told us. We have to reframe the language in a way that they understand and make it positive. Don't blame them for not doing it. Encourage them in a way that they'll do that. And I think this is early infancy research and we need much more of it. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Research Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.